You are listening to Wait a Minute with Beth and Jessica, episode 41. I'm Jessica Pearson, certified life coach. And I'm Beth Barnett Babel, integrative nutrition therapist. Together, we're Path Nutrition, and we help clients break free from diet culture and create a healthy relationship with their body and food. Get our free anti diet toolkit now by going to our website, pathnutrition.com. Today, we're talking about body fat. Dun, which- dun, dun. <laughs> It might be controversial or triggering, but we're going to do our best to keep this on the right side of anti-diagonal. Yes, this is information only. Yes. This there is this gray area, right? Of the desire to love and accept yourself as you are mm-hmm. and wanting to pursue physical health and lifestyle change. And so what does that mean without focusing on the scale alone and succumbing to diet culture? We're going to unpack that today in sort of a book report. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, it is a it's a book report because it's not even quite a book review. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a book report. I love it. So Beth read this excellent book called The Secret Life of Fat, which is the science behind the body's least understood organ. So fat's an organ? Yep. Nice. And what it means for you. She was really excited about this book. We've been talking about it for like the last two weeks. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to bring this information to you and share it with you. And first, I want to offer a little preface, which is that fat, whether it is the fat in your food or body fat, is and always will be a circumstance. It is neutral. So while we talk about some of the science around it, I want you all to understand that this is simply information or data. Yes. And then from a body acceptance perspective, your body fat is not good or bad. It just is. You don't ever have to change it if you don't want to. You are 100% worthy and lovable no matter what. Your mental health is equally important to your physical health, if honestly not more so. Mm-hmm. And we still know that if you desire change, it still requires acceptance of yourself in the present. And yet we know As you will learn in this podcast episode, the circumstance of having certain amounts of body fat, high and low, can affect your health and or your relationship with food and your ability to change those things maybe as easily as you think it should be. Yeah. So I think with this topic and then when we talked about fructose and things is that it's not to create this doom and gloom or to villainize anything it's there's so much not good information out there in these sound bites and what i really really want to do is to tell people in this neutral way hey this is why your body is doing what it's doing or not doing and this is why and so then you can take that information and use it to however it is helpful for you to make a choice about something that you either consume, don't consume, or change in some way if you want to. But it's coming because knowledge is is really powerful. And I think all the knowledge combined together and not just like, you know, these little sound bites of things that sound good for, for now, like legit yeah. science. Yeah, because I think of diet culture as like, oh, we read these headlines or try these diets because somebody else maybe got some information and they're trying to tell you how to do it. But we're Mm -hmm. giving you the information for you to decide for yourself and giving you that empowerment. So that's what we're here to do. Yeah. Let's start with uh, some of the basics. Beth, what does fat do? Why do we have fat? Yeah. So (laughs) fat is like so... as I loved the book because, you know, I think fat is the most villainized part of weight loss. Cause when people are talking about wanting to lose weight, they're not talking about wanting to lose muscle mass or lose uh, bone health or anything. Everybody's talking about fat. And so, but it is actually really, really important, um, 
fat. So it manages our energy stores. Um, so, you know, we are not eating constantly 24 seven. And so in between those meals, we need to have, um, energy stores to break down and eat. And then, you know, there were other times, um, throughout the human life cycle or human history where we have needed, um, we've gone without as much food as the body would really desire. Um, so it actually enables transmission of brain signals or so neurotransmitters are use fat. Um, our actual brain size is largely fat dependent and we'll talk about um, that as it goes on. It actually, this part was so interesting to me. Um, I love reading this part of the book, but it actually facilitates the onset of puberty and also aids in um, that notification of labor and pregnancy. And then, and in that same vein, later in life, women depend on fat for both bone health along with the estrogen balance that we are left with after, once we are in menopause. Um, it plays a key role in absorbing certain nutrients that are critically important like vitamin E, D, and fat-soluble vitamin A and K. And those two, vitamin A and K, are different than the precursor ones um, that are found in plant-based foods. So without vitamin E and D and A and K, we will actually die. So we need to have them. Um, it also is really important in protecting our organs. So there is you know, that little subcutaneous fat over the top of our abdomen, and that is what cushions our organs so that we when we run into something or get injured, that there are some cushions where our organs don't burst. Um, it really helps us to maintain our body temperature. Um, it's critical in our immune system in a variety of ways. And um, to get an idea of how much we rely on fat in our body, at about 14 weeks of gestation, our embryos, embryo starts to manufacture fat even before all systems are functioning. And then fat and bone cells come from the same stem cells. So the body chooses to make bone cells or fat cells through mm. a series of, you know, the communication of what's going on in the body. So interesting. So interesting. So just some a little love of, of uh, appreciation there. And with this book at the beginning of it, like a lot of them, uh, when we we're talking about fat on a person's body, it comes with the historical commentary about the controversial, what I call controversial thinking about the moral goodness or badness. And this one, of course, had no shortage of, of historical information in that way. And we talked about this in one of the very first podcasts about, um, you know, fat and that makes you a good or bad person, they used to think. Um, but essentially, it was having more fat was accepted and was associated with having more money and social status. And so, because you would have more access to food as a whole, but, um, so that mean, meant you, because you had more access to food, you had more money, but and with that money, you had access to things that were not always inexpensive as they are now, like sugar and meat, um, certain grains and that sort of So anyways, I'm not going to spend too much time on that. Um, cause I really want to stick to the, the function of, of fat and what this book talked about, but essentially the book summarized all of the ways that fat has been a mystery and how it, how, and how it actually functioned because it wasn't even thought of as an organ or a major part of the endocrine system until the 1940s. And even then took a while to get, um, accepted as such. Um, and it was really thought of not much more than inert blubber. They really didn't think it did anything um, other than just like increase and decrease in size, but it didn't have any function. Um, so in each of the examples that were given about um, research that came out about how that functioned, um, many of the articles that would try to get published in medical journals or to be accepted by the medical community of the time, they often would refuse to believe them and therefore, and, and said that the data must be wrong. We're not going to publish this. You need to go back and look at it. But eventually, you know, the the researchers would push and push and just keep doing what they knew and believed in. And it would eventually get um, published and people would be like, oh, okay. And then, you know, have to 
keep their word. Which this is a whole separate podcast, but it's like, wow, we did just research for the research sake back then, uh-huh. where now it seems like everything is funded for a purpose. Uh-huh. Right. And it's like, like, are we are we researching mysteries without being funded by pharmaceuticals? I don't anymore? know. I'm sure there I'm sure there are. Um, it is a little bit more challenging because, you know, people do have to, you know, come up with the money, but I'm sure there is some non- I'm sure there's some neutral research going on somewhere. I, it's hard to say. Um, I, I try. I just after grad school and you know having to help write grants and and participate in all the collection of data. I was like, oh, I think I'm done with this for a while, and just put on my blinders on that and just read PubMed from time to time. But what I really got out of this book as a whole is how hard the body works particularly leptin to keep the body fat stores at a certain amount. Like that's really, it just works really hard to, to do that. And then particularly, and then learning more about the different genetic mutations in leptin or when um, leptin communication gets off either by genetic factors or environmental factors that it really works very hard to, um, to try to maintain fat, fat, fat mass, but also like, um, how like you can either over store it. And that when we, when leptin miscommunicates, like it really creates this insatiable hunger, which feels very real. Right. So like you could be eating like a very solid amount of food and you might not even feel as full as maybe you are, or you're going to be very hungry very soon after. Yeah. So, um, because leptin is one of our main hunger hormones, but it's from fat. So there are other, there are different hunger, um, hormones, but leptin is the one that is produced in fat cells and then it travels to receptors and the brain. And from there, the brain will signal, yeah, we're good we don't need to eat or, you know, a little hunger, like it'll produce like this normal, you know, normal hunger or not hunger or no, things are not fine. We're losing fat. We need to ramp up the hunger. So this is where leptin is just like pushing, 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 um, ramp up the hunger, get more calories so we can maintain what we have. And, um, leptin, you know, also communicates with us. Like when we, when we exercise, we, feel hungrier, right? On those days that we exercise because we did exert more calories and, or we burned more calories. And so then the leptin is like, well, we have to replace that. (laughs) You can't redo it. So then we do, we do feel more hungry after we exercise. And so we can easily replace what they, what they did. And this, um, there was a section and then we're talking about how men and women are different in this case and that women are very good at utilizing fat for energy during exercise, but we are even better at replacing, replacing. the calories. So, um, it is a struggle. And I think that's why women get so frustrated because we, our biological need, um, in our bodies to maintain a fat amount is, is really there. Uh, the body just hasn't caught up with the, you know, the fact that, you know, sometimes there's, there's more than what is actually needed. And this just raises that whole like intuitive eating thing can be very challenging yes. if we're battling a leptin dysregulation. Yeah. Because, and, and then also the trigger, you know, a lot of people feel very uncomfortable with hunger. Right. And then the question is like, how much physical hunger would we need to feel? And is it safe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, we can talk about this more at the end if you want, or we can inter- I can interject that now because what I think about and one of my philosophies has been when to not go too fast because right. of that leptin increase that drive for hunger um, is there. And so if we go at a slower pace then the body, you know, you can really work with it much easier. It's not, it's, it's not the shiny, you know, fast result that everybody wants, but, um, it is, you know, a path to, to maintenance, um, that, Mm -hmm. that is actually more doable than the other, because when 
calories are cut, especially in a, you know, quite significantly, that hunger does rise and it will continue depending on the amount and degree of restriction. So when they used to do like starve, when they did some of the early starvation studies, um, to look at, see what was happening in people's, um, metabolics and hormones and things like that when people were having to be, you know, their calories were severely restricted. I think this was like post-war um, or two or one. I'm trying to figure that out. All of the reports um, when they've done these different studies is people just talk about how they were all thoughts were consumed by food. So because they were so restricted in how much food they could have, they would um, think about food all day. They would fantasize about it. They would think about memories of food or how they could figure out how to get more food or make the little bit of food that they were allotted go further. And so they really weren't able to think about anything else except for food. Which sounds like survival mode. Right. It was because they were doing these like, you know, basically starvation studies. So this is, I think, another reason why, you know, we go on these more restrictive diets and stuff like that. I mean, it's not that much more because then we think about, okay, well, then when I can get to the end of this week, then I can do it. And, you know, we just like become all consumed because the Mm -hmm. brain and, you know, the leptin in the brain are having a conversation about there is a problem and we need more food because we are dwindling our reserves here. Yeah. Even though that is the person's purpose, our biology was not designed to go in that, that, that pattern. So that was um, pretty interesting. So then even after the refeeding um, in these studies and weight was restored, most people gained more than where they were before the study. Um, and it was, you know, kind of like this, uh, you know, this additional um, action of leptin and, and our genes being able to, well, we need to have these extra reserves in case we go through that again. And then there's, um, you know, studies about reports of family genetics of those that, um, family lineages that have been through famines and a thrifty gene essentially is what they call it is passed along down the lineage lineage. And so individuals down the line become very good at storing calories. So they have a better chance of surviving another famine, but we're not really in that situation, even though we might carry those same genes, our body is just like, Oh, we've hit the calorie storage jackpot, you know, like we did it. And so So, like we talked about generational trauma before, but it's like, wow, it can even manifest physically in your genes in the way that you. Oh yeah. Yeah. So even like, so generational trauma in that way, you know, to turning on, um, it changes and it can change like how we store fat. It can, um, turn up, regulate, um, how our blood pressure and blood sugar regulation, blood sugar regulation. And this is why part of what can happen because the stress on the body is turning these genes on when a person is through going is like pregnant, you know, so even though they're under stress, their bodies, you know, was able to get pregnant and, um, and, but with these genes turned on and then they pass them on. And so that's how, you know, like type two diabetes and some of these things are hereditary is that the gene is turned on. But again, it doesn't just because you have the gene doesn't mean you turn it on, but that's part of the situation. So speaking of genes, so in a way, it's like, it's not that like being a certain body size is genetic. It's, I mean, it is and it isn't. It is and it, it isn't. isn't. Yeah. It, it is, there, it, it, there is a component for sure. Right. Um, there is a component of, of it that is genetic, but I wouldn't say that that's everyone. Well, I guess like some people say like, it's my genetics. So therefore I just can't lose weight because everybody in my family is this size. So it doesn't mean that that's necessarily true. Just maybe it means yes, based on some of those genes, it might be harder for you. Correct. It might just be harder. I mean, it just, well, we, uh, yeah, there's uh, something <laughs> we'll get <laughs> we, to, we it. to talk about it. And I won't, I'm like, all my mouth. Um, so, you know, speaking of genetics, um, so there, there are these very fascinating, um, genetic variations in leptin. So 
One is, is that the fat does not actually produce leptin at all or adequate adequately enough. So the brain does not recognize that everything is okay. And the other is that leptin is produced by the fat cells, but the receptors in the brain do not recognize the signal. In both of these cases, individuals do experience that insatiable hunger. Like when they talk about like what the, you know, the people went through and like, you know, talking about eating everything, everything, and then like breaking into cabinets and just like eating non-food. Like they just, it is just this severe biological drive to eat because they're not recognizing it. And in one of the cases, um, in one of the genetic variations, because of the way the brain receives it, that she wasn't actually able to create more adipose tissue. And so the body didn't have any place, but she had insatiable hunger. So she kept eating. And because there was, she wasn't able to create more fat cells, her body, her blood took on whatever it could, but then it started creating like fat deposits in her skin and just like trying to create like some in her skin. And they were, she was talking about like how painful it was. Like she couldn't walk um, because like it was physically painful on her skin. And then when they um, would go to the, when she went to the doctor to get blood work, they would draw her blood and it would look like the doctors reported in the case that it uh, looked like cream in Ew. her blood because they would have to, because it was so dangerous, they would oh um, filter her blood, um, pull out what fat that she could. Um, and so that was, you know, that started when she was just before puberty. So instead of, you know, um, gaining the weight, she started losing the weight, but her hunger was there. So she was hungry all the time, but she couldn't really gain any fat, but it was going in her skin. And then the other case of the leptin, um, gene variation is, is that they have insatiable hunger. They eat and eat and eat and then they are, but their body is very good at growing adipose tissues. And so then they grow in size very rapidly. And in both of these cases, um, with the discovery of leptin, um, in the, in the eighties, early nineties, um, that the leptin injection therapy both reversed these, conditions. Wow. And so then the, they were both like, they both immediately remembered not being hungry anymore. Like that moment where they're like, I could stop eating, not because I was forced to, but because my body recognized food and I could feel the hunger go away. And so they would stop eating. And so then, um, her, um, the, the, uh, the pustules in her skin that the fat deposits all like kind of diminished and her blood started to look normal again. And she went on to live like a totally healthy, normal life. And in the one where they, um, just gained excess fat continuously, um, then the body stopped as well. And, um, they were able to, to lose. I wish the listeners could see my eyeballs. (laughs) (laughs) They're so big, but I'm also just so glad they got a happy ending. Yeah. Well, there was one that was so sad. Um, it was talking about, um, the different types of fats we've heard about. Um, some people may have heard about brown fat. It is one of the types of very metabolically active fats that we have when we're babies, we have more of it and it really helps to, um, keep that's part of what helps keep us warm as it's active and warms us up. Um, and it, um, plays a role in our metabolism. But unfortunately, in this case, um, there was a gene where she had mostly brown fat and not very much white fat, and she could not eat enough to keep up with her energy stores. And so, and she, and the, and the, the baby died at like age two because they couldn't keep, because she couldn't store enough of the regular kind of white fat. It was all like really just like oh. burnt. She was like just basically burning fuel nonstop and could not, they couldn't keep enough calories in her. That's so sad. And so they weren't able to, um, find the, what, what changed that fat. Yeah. But some other key discoveries that this book is depressing. It was really depressing, but fascinating at the same time. Um, other key discoveries about our body fat, um, how body fat increases as leptin increase. So it actually leptin stimulates the hormone cascade to start puberty and later menarche. Um, is that how you say it? 
I just say menstruation. menstruation. I don't know what. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I should know this, but you know, I get my brain goes into not function mode whenever I try to record a podcast. So anyways, so what, what happened, what they, this woman discovered, she was looking at population studies and, um, she found that across all, all these different populations across the world that the average, um, weight for girls increased just before the start of their, um, periods. And it was roughly around 13 pounds, but they didn't know where the, what, where the weight was coming from. Like, was it blood, you know, was it volume? Was it bone? And then they, she discovered that it was actually a percent in, um, in fat. So they all got to about 17% body fat was needed in order to start their period and needed to maintain a 22% um, body fat percentage in order to have a regular monthly cycle as they approached, um, 16 years of age. And, um, they found that, uh, young athletes and dancers. So this researcher, um, was connected with somebody in New York that, um, had a practice next to the uh, ballet studio and just would like see these young women and he would see them and they, they would had irregular periods and um, he was able to study their body fat based on this woman's research. Um, again, no one will listen to this woman. They were like, who cares? Why do we care about this? And it turns out it was really important because it were related to fertility later on. But anyway, so if in young female athletes and dancers, those that trained very hard before um, the start of their periods, each year of hard training delayed the start of their period by five months. So most athletes and dancers have an average 2.3 year. They start their periods 2.3 years mm-hmm. later than non-intense training teens. Or if they started their intense training post period. Did it address like the early onset Period. It did not. Yeah. No, it didn't talk about that. Um, I was curious about that too. Um, but I think that it would, you know, could potentially be based on, because yeah, it didn't talk about like the factors behind that, but you know, what would create a, you know, that body fat percentage to rise, to get to that point to then signal, okay, it's time to start her period. Um, so they found that in this whole, in that group of, um, of dancers and athletes that for women, they need to have, they tended to have irregular periods with, um, 20% body fat and then a loss of periods at 19% body fat. So we would hear a lot about that in, um, female athletes in college, you know, the female athlete triad. And then it's not just for, this is low fat is not just a problem for women, for men as well. If body fat gets too low, cause it's usually related to calories, um, their prostate fluid goes down, libido goes down and so does sperm production. So it's all related. And then as women need to be able to, um, become pregnant that, um, you need to have at least that, um, that 22% body fat seemed to be the magic number for women to be able to conceive. So low body fat was challenging. So they would, um, when they would get to this, you know, 21, 22% body fat, then they were able to, um, to conceive. And it does go the other end, which we can talk about in just a second, but, The other fascinating thing is, as I mentioned before, about how the stem cells um, for fat cells and bone cells are, you know, come from the same stem cell. Well, it appears that under these like anorexic like conditions, so anorexic meaning just not, not adequate calories. We're not talking about, you know, forcefully not consuming food to, to look a certain way. Um, the body will neglect its own skeleton in favor of fat production. So it will tell the stem cells to convert into fat cells rather into new bone cells. Which is, which is why sometimes like long-term you see people who are undernourished that are like having osteoporosis yes. at a young age. Yeah. So it definitely leads to that because then they're not getting the, the, the initial, especially when it happens in a really young age, they're not laying down that even that beginning foundation of bone. And then, if it were to continue through, um, you know, we lay, lay bone till about age twenty-two, um, then 
it, it would then continue on. Like, so you're not even getting that foundation of mm. bone growth. So, um, and then as we get older, if we are too lean, they found studies that if, um, those that had a heart attack had worse outcomes than those that were carrying an extra 10 to 15 pounds of fat. And again, this is one of those studies that they wouldn't publish because they said your data is wrong. Um, but it turns out that, um, having a little bit of extra fat was actually more protective of recovery or survival of a heart attack. And then, um, low BMI, um, with fat was, is equally detrimental for the brain. Um, there's high rates of dementia, of dementia as you get older compared to normal BMI. And again, like this is the flip side of it was then if it gets over this other amount, this, you know, over fatness, depending on, you know, how the fat's communicating, you have, detrimental effects. So related to fertility, if you have, um, excess fat, it can create, um, too much estrogen, which makes it hard to maintain the pregnancy. And so there is, it seemed to be like the body is really trying to maintain this, this sweet spot of between 20 and 30% for women. And then for men, it's, it is lower. Um, but moving on. So, other things that can create um, our fat to miscommunicate besides leptin issues is um, viruses and bacteria. So there was some really, I, I'm not going to share with it because I really want people to read it, but um, about um, a certain virus that comes from chickens, not from eating chickens, by the way, you have to like, you know, been like had contact with either like a scratch or something like that. But this virus that happens, that alters um, leptin and hunger and fat storage. Um, if you have liposuction, you know, you're taking out so much fat so quickly and the body really fights back on that. And so if it can't store, get new, um, get fat back in different places. So say you had it taken from your thighs and your butt, then it will try to put it in your arms, um, and your back. And if it can't put it all there, then it goes to visceral tissue. So that, um, the visceral fat, so all the metabolically active fat between your organs, not on top of your organs, but the fat in between your organs, which is um, the kind that is the most dangerous. And then um, other things that communicate with fat are um, plastics, pesticides, and those are all considered to be obesogens because they um, have changed the signal in our sex hormone binding globulins and other hormones. So yeah. Can we just rewind to that virus? Because you didn't really touch on that story. So Beth told me it was like a very specific story about a man yes. who got scratched by a chicken. Got scratched by a virus. chicken. Well, Which, I wanted way, people to read it so they could also discover how amazing okay. the story was. But we'll, we're going to talk about because now we've gone too far. Get, I'm sorry. I didn't want to be... <laughs> spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Yeah. I mean, really, got I'm just never going to hold a chicken. by a chicken. Um, cause he worked on a farm as a kid. And so he got scratched by, uh, by a chicken. And then he says he, he, after that, which he didn't put two and two together until well into his adult life, he heard about this study and, um, he drove from where he was and he became like a, you know, his family was all, you know, average people. And he worked really hard on the farm. Like he never sat down and he just kept gaining weight, gaining weight, gaining weight. And they couldn't figure out. So he was always going on these diets and things like that. And, um, it didn't matter really. So then it turned out that once they discovered this and he got put into the study, he was like, Oh, okay. Um, this is why. And so he really talks about um, how it was hard in his community because it was a small rural community. Um, you know, food was a part of everything. And he's like, had to tell people, look, it's not that I don't love you. I just can't eat your food. If he's like, either I eat your food and I, I die because of the consequences of being obese or, or not. And so he's like, there's an eater world and a not eater world. And I just can't be a part of the, and so there was no world. cure for his viral infection. No, at this time there is no cure for that particular viral thing though. I don't know. I think that there probably could be like some other way, but, um, at this time. And so then what was suggested was at this time, there's not, but we're hoping that there will be a vaccine one day. And I'm like, what, what? Like, <laughs> 
Like how many people need a chicken right. scratch vaccine? That's why I was. That's why I was like, wait a minute. But again, it's like it's, it was only one section of a book, so you know it's hard to go you know much further than that. Um, and then our bacteria and our gut also influence that. So we have certain bacteria that are able to really extract out all of the calories from food and be able to influence how we. Um, take those calories and, and store them and, and whatnot. So the type of bacteria that we have in our gut, um, does play a big role in that. Um, so I'll kind of transition to what we think about a lot in, um, fat in our society. So we mostly hear about the negative effects, uh, health wise of fat. So, just as leptin is communicating with our brain about maintaining fat amount, it fat also communicates with our immune system. So when it communicates with our immune system on a chronic basis is what creates that inflammation cascade. And then it triggers the downstream effects of like the metabolic dysfunction of blood, blood sugar, dysregulation, heart diseases, and so on and so forth. So that's, you know, kind of part of that. Um, and then there is a whole section about the influence of exercise and, um, and fat and that exercise for some doesn't seem to matter, but it does matter for most people. So then example was that sumo wrestlers, you know, are very large, um, in what they eat and they eat a lot. Um, they have a high fat mass, but the way and how much they exercise, they have no, none of the downstream, um, inflammation metabolic issues. So they're protected by their cardiovascular, um, exercises that they do for sumo wrestling training. And so once they stop training though, that, that is when, um, they start having the metabolic issues like everybody else. So interesting. Yeah. So, um, and then I'll digress back a little bit to, um, the liposuction that the, the few people that do have better success with liposuction exercise before, like have a really good exercise routine before and after, and that minimizes though, doesn't completely change how much fat your body will try to gain back. So my question about the liposuction was if you, I mean, I don't know what the rules are about like how much you can actually take out. I'm sure there is a percentage. Yeah. You can't just take it all. I don't think you can just like go in and like, they don't take like a hundred pounds at a time. Right. right? But, but I'd be curious, like, are you, you know, from a scientific standpoint, if you were trying to maintain the, um, the amount of energy that you're intaking, like, do you have to eat for the new body fat percentage, not the way that you were in order to maintain that? Probably. So like if you don't, it's, yeah, yeah know, you would. And also though, you're still, you're, you still have leptin is still like that happened so fast. It still wants to fight to get back to that percentage. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like does your body perceive it's like, Whoa, what just happened? Like, does it think that you had like an arm chopped off or like, that's, that's what it seems like because of that communication. I don't know. It's so fascinating. Yeah. And I mean, I've, I've only known a few people personally who've been open enough to talk about their experiences with liposuction mm-hmm. and they've all advised against it. Yeah. <laughs> so I yeah. I mean, it's, it seems strange that it still is a, you know, a popular choice, um, given what well, we know about it, but maybe, maybe they don't well, I guess know. there's that apex know. of like, you know, when we talk about weight loss and health, like where, where is that line where like losing the actual weight is what might contribute to some health factors, even if you're not making some of these lifestyle changes, but then eventually it does catch up. So I don't know. I don't know. know. All in all, I just, I found it to be really very interesting and it really hit home for me just about how hard our body does want to maintain something and you know what we really, and I, I think that that's helpful in the people that struggle. Right. And it's like, okay, it's not 
a, my, a lack of me trying, not able to, to get this change that I want. It is really my biology and potentially these other factors that I might need to look at, like bacteria, gut balance and, um, you know, how much plastics and styrofoams do I use? Or, you know, what is my exposure to these different things? You know, it's just really, it's, I just want people to know it is not that you aren't trying your body just really is, has a strong regulation of, you know, trying to maintain this. Yeah. And so this kind of makes me think of like the word willpower and how we talk about how like willpower is not really all that helpful because we know that it's like holding a beach ball underwater. It will always pop back up, Mm -hmm. but it will, this is why it feels like that sometimes, Mm -hmm. right? It's like, it feels hard. And there are sometimes things that if, you know, if you do want to, create a certain result it might not be effortless but you don't also don't have to starve in right the process, yeah right? and you don't have to do these extreme diets there's like ways to nourish yourself in the process it just it does take more time and it's going to take more consistency and there it, it does take some effort yeah um, and you might experience the physical sensation of hunger here and there and it doesn't mean that you're actually starving and how do we manage all of that so I don't know I just think it's like really tricky because everybody talks about hunger from the non-diet perspective as like if you're hungry just eat but like that's not necessarily always correct right which is tricky right we don't want you to un- under under eat no. well so if you're if you have that desire to to change and to to lose body fat percentage you do have to go from this amount amount. there does there has to be a change somewhere but you know there are going to be times where our hunger is over talking to us based on the current situation of of what you're trying to do and it is challenging and i can't and it is a very delicate dance to balance which with each individual's um history of their weight and and diets and things that they've gone through in their life. And so I think that it's, there's not, there's not a blanket solution. No. And you were even on the side note talking about, you're like, based off all of what you've read, you're like, there, there are multiple paths to creating change, right? Yeah. People talk about like, yeah, it could be low fat, high carb. It could be low carb, high fat. It could be, you know, it's like these different ratios. There's not one way that just like works for everybody or that will work for you maybe because of your own even preferences or desires. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's, that's where we get caught up in the diet culture of it all. Cause we're like, just tell me the one thing that's going to work. Right. And it, and it, it, it's not going to be, it can't always be the one thing for everybody because there are, there are so many different paths. I think, you know, just to kind of summarize one thing that really, I was, I have to say, I loved the way that she wrote the book because it was very sciencey, but sciencey in a story. And so therefore I was able to read it quickly and really enjoy it and absorb it. But the last chat, one of the last chapters was about her, you know, struggle with weight and then how she, based on all the information that she learned about how fat functions, what she did to lose her excess fat and get to, you know, what she felt like was a healthy weight for her. And it was just really hard to read because, you know, she would intermittent fast or, um, pretty extremely, or like she talked about like what she ate in a day. And I'm like, I would have died for sure by Tuesday. Like I wouldn't have made it. And, you know, um, or she had stopped eating by 3 PM and then she would, you know, go through these phases of telling her husband about all the food that she missed that she can't eat and all this other stuff because her body was so like driven towards, you know, wanting to eat. And, you know, she didn't talk to her husband all the time forever about, you know, the foods that she can't eat that she wished that she could. Um, you know, they did subside over time as her body readjusted. And I, I don't know, I, I was both like cringe and also in awe that she was able to just be like, I am here to outsmart the biology of what my body thinks it needs, but it's actually not, it's miscommunicating. Right. And I thought that that was pretty both amazing and like, because (laughs) of, you know, diet culture as a whole, 
but brave on her for like talking about what all she did. And there are just not that many people that are willing to do what she did. Well, and she had to do multiple things. Like it wasn't just one because the body readjusts. Right. And so she would have to do this thing and then move to this thing and that thing. And it it was was hard. Yeah. Well, one, I want to follow up on her. Like, where is she today? How is she doing? What is she doing? (laughs) I'll get back to you. I did. I thought I was like, Oh, I do. I need to look up, see what she's at. I I didn't look, look it up. I looked at her and her current picture looked still, you know, like her, I don't know. I'd have yeah. to. Sit, and I had, so. and I also, I think I'd ask, cause I was like, well, what was her current weight? What was she trying to get to? Like, was this a, I think so. She was like short, a petite person. She was like around five feet, five foot one. And you know, had 30, 30 pounds to lose. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing too, which I think is always really f- interesting to her, she is- had 25, 30 pounds to lose. Well, right. It's like, what does that mean? But the other interesting thing too is like sometimes there are actions like say intermittent fasting or not eating after three or whatever, like things like we could, we could all have our different opinions about Mm -hmm. it where it's like, oh, that's really drastic or that seems like diet culture. But what really matters the most is what she thought about. Correct. And for her, she didn't have the mind drama. She wasn't approaching it from like a torturous Mm -mm. diet culture mindset. She was like, this is a science experiment. I'm doing this from this particular mindset that is not creating emotional turmoil. Right. And she had been, I, you know, she talked about the emotional turmoil that she had been in, but in her earlier, early college years. And this was from a very different place. It still was like, wow, it was amazing. Cause I'm like, I don't think I would. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Things. You're like, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm like, oh, you know, I, I mean, I'm willing to do like, there are certain things that I'm willing to do that others are not. And she was willing yeah. to do something that I am not like, I would rather go phys- like find a, like a physical thing that I can do to, right. to change my <laughs> metabolics over adjusting my food too extremely, (laughs) but that's me. You know, I have a severe, I have a a strong hold on, you know, on food and it's fine. Right. So, I mean, I just think that's like really important for everyone to know. It's like, well, what do we know about ourselves Mm -hmm. and our emotional status? And like, once we come up to some of these changes, it's like, well, if this is emotional taxing, like we either need to coach on that or do the nutritional therapy on it Mm -hmm. to get you to the next level. Or you also get to decide like, just know, right? Like, hey, this is this is where it, the where it stops for me. And then sometimes it's like finding that acceptance and coaching for the present self, where it's like, yeah, I'm not really willing to change, and how do I let that go so that I'm not spending this mental energy thinking that I need to change when I've already decided, like, I'm just not going to do it. Right? Yeah, I know it was it was good. I I really hope that everybody goes out to. Uh, I hope that people read it. I read it on Kindle. You can get it on Audible and whatever you need to do. Um, I thought it was really fascinating um, because it does go into a lot more detail than what we could cover here. So, yeah. We keep our eyes peeled for things in the media or in real life that come from diet culture. Speaking of. (laughs) (laughs) Or that perpetuate diet culture in some way. These are often the subtle ways it creeps in, which is why we are shining a light on it and sharing it with you. And today, oh, Beth has an update. I do. Okay, so we we heard my rant from about a week ago from a previous recent podcast about the injectables. Um and um, medications that are being given to people that can sign up for them online. They're delivered to their, to their house. And so one of them is the, you, you talked about the report, the article about the women, right. Doing the Ozempic that they, you mm-hmm. know, the lady that's like, what have you done? Well, it turns out that because of the off label, um, prescribing, of the GLP-1 um, injectable medications that people are using for weight loss, that there is a global shortage of the medication. So people that have type one, type 2 diabetes that use these, um, particularly Ozempic and um, some of the um, 
the Ozempic one is, there is a shortage of it. So the people that are using that, that have type two have to contact their doctor to find, to get on, to find another plan because, um, it is a complicated, uh, medication to make. And therefore with the shortage, they have, they can't just make more. There has to be, there's a different, um, process that has to happen with the equipment and manufacturing setting to make it. Um, and it will take, um, up to, they are saying up to a year for them to be able to get back to, to normal. So because of the weight loss community of, you know, let's try these, um, very strong prescription medications to lose weight people that have that use this for type two diabetes, um, and other insulin related conditions will have to find different medication. Mm. Um, I actually know someone who is getting samples from the doctor because there's not any to prescribe, Mm -hmm. but I will say because she's under a doctor's supervision, um, they started her at a really low dose and over time are incrementing it Mm -hmm. so that, um, re-increasing it so that she actually has not experienced any of the side effects that we talked about last time. I don't know anybody that even at the low dose, I've not personally met anybody. That's amazing for her. Yeah. So I thought I was like, oh, I was like, this is a perfect example of why if you're going to do it, definitely do it through your doctor and not through some mail order diet website because, um, you know, it just, it made more sense to do it that way. And yeah. So she said they're basically working her way up. So by the time it is available again, she'll be at whatever the lowest dose or whatever is the dose that's yeah yeah out yeah. There. So I was like, well, that's cool. I was like, that sounds responsible and reasonable. Yeah, and she and she is a person who would be an actual candidate for the drug. Yeah. So. So. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Well, also, I also just really quickly wanted to touch on the thing that I got today that I just <sighs> sent you like 30 minutes ago. Um, so I, I don't honestly don't know who sent this to me. I'm guessing it is a client. I just don't have her number saved in my phone. But it was it was, looks like, you know, kind of like a trash mag. Or no, it's New York Post. Well, we can debate what that is. But it's debatable. New, yeah. <laughs> so it's a New York Post article. It says like, sweet success. New Yorker loses 90 pounds by eating candy. And there's like a before and after photo. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you like actually read the article and it it's not as like, you know. Yeah. She started a, a fitness program of lifting weights and she just happened to add these sour. They look essentially like a, some kind of sour patch kid candy before her workout. So that's how she started losing weight is because of that like, well, she was eating a lot of candy before, right. which is why she gained a lot of weight. And then, you know, with her trainer, he was like, Hey, well, if you're going to have some candy, have this candy right before your workout. It actually like, <laughs> I just like, uh, like just imagine me just like banging my head on my, on my table right now. <laughs> Yeah. And then like the other thing, the final paragraph is like, it's a little treat. The candies aren't just fuel, they're motivation. Some days when I don't really feel like working out, I do it anyway, because I I know if I go, I can have the candy, which is like very interesting psychology, right? That's very very, like um, Pavlovian, you know, and and I don't know. It's just like, it's just the, it's not even what she's doing that I think is, you know, worthy. It's the headline. Yeah. It was the headline for me. It made me so mad because I'm like, really? That's what we're going to go. That's the headline we're going for. And it's like, yeah, you can probably have some candy in these way, But they, they make it sound like, oh, all she did was just sit around and eat candy and she lost 90 pounds. No, she did a pretty big overhaul in her lifestyle. Yeah. <sighs> anyway. Okay. I sure hope we gave you something new to think about today and helped you take one more step on your path to freeing yourself from diet culture. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Instagram at path underscore nutrition. If you're looking to change your relationship with food and your body from a whole health perspective, please visit our website at pathnutrition.com to get started. Bye. Bye everyone.